ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The Supreme Court agrees to take up Donald Trump's appeal that he is immune from prosecution for acts committed within his official duties. What does this mean for the chances of a trial on the January 6th Capitol riot charges before the election? Plus, Mitch McConnell announces that he'll resign as Republican leader of the Senate at the end of this Congress. We'll talk about his legacy as Senate leader. Welcome. I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages, and I'm here with Bill McGurn and Kim Strassel. Let's start with the Supreme Court decision to take up the case, a terse announcement, saying that the question that it will consider is whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office. Very consequential decision. Of course, the Supreme Court in 1982 case called Nixon v. Fitzgerald said the president has absolute immunity from lawsuits for acts committed as president while pursuing official duties, but that was a civil case. The question now the court will consider is, does that immunity also apply to criminal cases? And then, as part of this, are those acts he's accused of committed within the outer perimeter of his official duties as president? This is hugely important, not just for Trump and his trials, although it certainly is that, but also hugely important for the presidency going forward because it could affect future presidents who might be charged with crimes by prosecutors who want to take action against a president of the other party who's particularly disliked, say, and could be, oh, well, maybe Joe Biden if Donald Trump wins <laughs> the presidency in November. So, uh, Bill, are you surprised the Supreme Court took this up? Because in many ways, the easiest thing for the court to have done would have been to just say, we're going to duck this one and we're going to let this D.C. Circuit ruling that said he doesn't have immunity stand. Yeah, I think, Paul, you've said before, the Supreme Court seems to be the only functioning government bureaucracy in Washington, <laughs> part of the government. Right. And that means doing the tough things that is within their ambit. Now, on this question, I don't know. There are good arguments for both sides. I don't know where the line would be drawn, like the outer perimeter we talk about and so forth. I don't know how they do it. But I think once it becomes a question, is there obligation to give guidelines and to do it? And you mentioned D.C. Circuit. I mean, Donald Trump has done all sorts of extraordinary things, right? He's so different. He breaks the glass in so many instances. But he's been blessed by enemies that constantly overreach. I think you were implying that if the D.C. Circuit had issued a narrower ruling, you know, just saying his activities weren't within the outer limits of his responsibilities as president— they might have gotten away with it. It'd be certainly easier to sell the court because it'd be one definition. I think they didn't really even address it and just make a sweeping decision. I think the Supreme Court really had to take it. And I'm glad. I'll be very curious where they draw the line. I assume the justices have different views 
because this is not a black and white issue. Trump has some good arguments, and so does the prosecution. Yeah, Bill, to your point about the D.C. Circuit, their ruling by the three-judge panel said, we cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. It basically concluded in the ruling that there's no immunity at all for anything. And they kind of dismissed Nixon v. Fitzgerald as having no relevance to a criminal prosecution. The judges basically said that Trump is sui generis, There's not any likelihood that future presidents would be prosecuted criminally. Therefore, this is an outlier of a case. There's no immunity for a president. And they never even got to the outer perimeter question or whether any of the charges alleged by Trump for his actions are within the outer perimeter. And neither did the trial judge, Kim. So the uh, Supreme Court is basically saying, uh, we're not going to let that stand because it's too sweeping and we need to weigh in ourselves. And absolutely right. Look, one of the arguments in Nixon v. Fitzgerald And obviously it was dealing with civil liability, but it noted that the reason it was taking this step in this decision was because to not do so would potentially subject a president to an avalanche of private lawsuits that would hinder and impede one's ability to do the duties of the office. I do not understand why the same couldn't be argued, could end up being the case in criminal prosecutions. It's one thing for the D.C. Circuit to assert that Trump is sui generis, but I think we've all done this long enough to know that once you lower a bar on something, and that's what Jack Smith did here with this decision to go after a former president with criminal cases, It's not that difficult to see a future Department of Justice trying the same thing against a candidate of an opposing party. It's certainly not difficult to see state prosecutors and district attorneys like Alvin Bragg, the equivalent maybe on the right in different states, launching criminal lawsuits against political candidates. And so it seems incumbent, yes, upon the Supreme Court to look at the question of civil liability. And one other thing that just drives me nuts about this, I'm going to add, is that when people say, well, no president can be entirely above the law and we simply can't accept that, that is ignoring the outer perimeter argument. The the case that people are talking about are indeed official acts. And nobody is arguing that if a former president, current president, to use one of Donald Trump's favorite examples, if Donald Trump went out and shot someone on the street, that's not an official act. Obviously, there could be criminal liability for that. But this question about whether or not actions taken in office can be subject to this sort of criminal indictment, I think is an incredibly important point. Well, to just elaborate on my point that Trump, if he becomes president, could ask his attorney general to go after Joe Biden. Here's what Trump said recently. Joe would be ripe for indictment, (laughs) quote unquote. He didn't say for what crime. But we all know that the federal statute books are uh, voluminous, and uh, there are all kinds of things that an inventive prosecutor could decide to go after, such as, for example, the Supreme Court held last year that a law gives prison time to a person who encourages or induces an alien to come to enter or reside in the United States. Could a Trump-era prosecutor decide, oh, okay, Biden encouraged that kind of an offense? I'm not saying that that's justified in any way, but that's one of the reasons that we thought imprudent unwise to go after Trump in this case for criminal acts. So it's very interesting, Bill. And it's also interesting because to pick up an appeal, four justices have to say yes for a so-called writ of certiari to be accepted. But to impose what essentially is a stay, it requires five justices. So that suggests to me that a majority of the justices at least want to hear this question and believe it important enough to hear 
even though the justices know that however they come down, one side or the other, they're going to come in for enormous political heat. Yeah, that's the problem once these cases are raised. Look, I believe it's their obligation to take the case and draw the lines and so forth, because there's a lot of questions about definitions, what counts, what doesn't. I don't think on either side there's a black and white case one way or the other. So it's going to require some parsing, some negotiations among the justices for an opinion that, you know, is clear and so forth. So I think that's good. Look, one of the things you allude to, I think it's a very real possibility that you mentioned what would happen if Trump won and Biden was out there. Look, the Democrats time and again, when they don't like an institution that's worked for years, the Electoral College, the filibuster in the Senate, Weep it aside, and many times they come to regret it. I remember the independent counsel only died after it was applied to Bill Clinton. You know, they right, didn't like right. that and so forth. So I think what you say is absolutely right. It's amazing to me that they don't think of this before they act. For example, just look at the impeachment of Joe Biden. I think there's a lot of information, a lot of questions about what he did. I think it's a legitimate inquiry. But I'm not sure we would have it rise to the impeachment level had not Trump been twice impeached in a very hurried process with a lot of questions about it. I'm not sure we would do that. And I hope it doesn't become a precedent, kind of like a no confidence vote. So I hope the justices take this very seriously and almost eliminate Trump's name and just look at the merits. That's so hard for so many people to do. But the real interests are much greater than Donald Trump. And the Democrats have some interests in it, too, though they might not recognize it. All right, we're going to take a break. and When we come back, we'll talk about what impact the Supreme Court taking up this case has on the timeline for the various prosecutions against Donald Trump when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo here with Kim Strassel and Bill McGurn. And we're talking about the uh, Supreme Court decision to take up the immunity appeal of Donald Trump. And this, of course, affects the uh, timeline on the various cases that have been uh, charged against Donald Trump, and in particular, the January 6th case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. He had wanted to try the case on March 4th because of the immunity appeal and the appeal from the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court. That has been delayed by the trial judge. And now we know that the oral argument by the Supreme Court has set April 22nd for that argument on the immunity case. It is now decided to hear. That means that any ruling by the court probably will be sometime in June, maybe towards the end of June, given the rest of the Supreme Court docket. And as Bill suggests, it's a very complicated case. The trial judge then has said, well, after this appeal is settled, and let's assume that Trump doesn't have immunity, then she's going to give three months 
for the parties to prepare. Now, already that pushes things into the fall, which is the middle of the election. And would that violate Justice Department guidelines against such criminal prosecutions, indictments, trials so close to an election? Kim, that's if Jack Smith wins on the immunity (laughs) appeal. So we can talk about what I think is a likelier outcome, but this is really a blow to Smith's prosecution timeline. Yeah, it is. Now, we'll see, by the way, if the DOJ, if this is where it heads and you end up with a trial that would be in the fall, if the DOJ actually honors its longstanding policy that you do not engage in judicial actions of any form of prosecutions near to an election because of the fear of influencing an election. We know that in the past that has certainly been a a rule and it's followed it fairly diligently. I mean, one of the things just recently, those IRS whistleblowers who came out to testify against Hunter expressed enormous frustration that their ability to bring charges against them have been delayed again and again because of fear within the DOJ that they couldn't launch a prosecution anywhere near an election in which Joe Biden might, in theory, be involved. And that was for a guy, you know, this is Hunter. He's not even on the ballot. They were being that cautious. So do they throw all that to the wind and just let Smith proceed? There's going to be a enormous pressure for that to happen. It's quite extraordinary to see the hand wringing out there about what all of this has meant for his prosecution. But I would note that it's not just his prosecution either. You know, we could at this point that the Fannie Willis case down in Georgia is collapsing as we watch it. The Florida judge just this week is actually having a decision about whether or not to push off a case that was the um, documents the case. documents case that was supposed to be heard in May, but now could be pushed off even past the election. You have Alvin Bragg's case in Manhattan. That may be one of the only ones that actually proceeds. And I would just say, if you're going to live by lawfare, you can die by lawfare. And Democrats have put a lot of time and effort into bringing these lawsuits, and they're not turning out the way a lot of them would hope. Just to talk about the January 6th case for a second, let's assume that the Supreme Court decides that a president does have some immunity from prosecution for criminal acts related to the president presidency. One of the likeliest outcomes in that event, if there are five votes for that, they would remand the case back to the trial judge and say, okay, you need to make a factual finding now, investigate through the court and the trial whether or not the acts that are alleged that Donald Trump committed, that you've charged him as criminal, were they related to acts, official acts, official duties within that outer perimeter of his official duties as president? And that Fact-finding would take a very long time and probably kick the case, any trial, past the election. So that's another way in which this could uh, all get delayed. And of course, if Donald Trump wins in November, then he would appoint an attorney general and order the Justice Department, no doubt, to drop the case. So that's one way in which this case dies. I don't think, Bill, that this is the intent of the Supreme Court, unlike a lot of Democrats might suggest. I think they really believe that this has real long-term implications for the separation of powers and presidential authority, and that they have to think about it and rule on it. I think you're right. I think, again, if you covered up Donald Trump's name and it was Bill McGurn or something in there, I think you would say that's the path that you outlined, send back down the court for a fact-finding. That's what would be done in normal circumstances. I mean, there are a lot of questions about this that involve due process claims by Trump and everything that are not really on the substance, but they have to be decided. And I think 
the critics are just not taking them into consideration. And I think the uh, responsible thing is to send back for the lower court for fact-finding. Then, if they appeal it, they can at least have the record under the new criteria what the court thought he did or did not do. And I think that would be a benefit. Of course, as you suggested, it would be immediately attacked as a pro-Trump ruling by uh, Trump appointees who were in the tank for the former president. So I think part of what you're saying is that either way, even if the rule of law is upheld and strict constitutional principles are applied and upheld, this is going to further divide the country along political lines because they're going to be attacked politically for it. To uh, underscore that point, Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, issued a statement on Wednesday after the Supreme Court had agreed to hear the case saying, now the Supreme Court is on trial. Okay, so the Supreme Court has now put itself on trial, basically saying that if the court doesn't rule the way she wants, which is to deny Trump's immunity claim, it is, in fact, violating what she thinks is the proper way it should proceed. And so they'll further attack the Supreme Court. And of course, if they would decide that Trump doesn't have immunity, then the court will be attacked by probably Donald Trump himself and a whole slew of his uh, supporters. This uh, gets to the heart, Kim, of why this lawfare strategy, in my humble opinion, has been misbegotten from the start. The way you defeat somebody is through the ballot box and the very high risk that they've taken in pursuing this lawfare strategy could end up backfiring. And indeed, it's helped Trump get the nomination, in my view. All the polls suggest it because Republicans think it's unfair. Who knows? Could end up helping him win the election. It's so corrosive. (laughs) No, it's just incredible at so many levels. And this was the thing that went through my head when Jack Smith first announced that he was bringing that document's case. And we were hearing the word unprecedented. And whenever you hear that word, you should run and hide because it just does not bode well in Washington. And These are the consequences. As you said, it has played an enormous role in the politics. It's very likely why Donald Trump is winning the nomination. In fact, if you look at certain polls, people have been asked and the overwhelming majority of Republican primary goers say that they have been more inclined to support Donald Trump because of the attacks against him by the Department of Justice. You see now the credibility of the Supreme Court. It was always destined that this was going to go to the courts. By the way, I'd like to also just hold out a little bit of of name and shame for the D.C. Circuit. Had they not bowed to Jack Smith's demand that they speed up their own hearing on this question, which they did. And by the way, you know, arguments deserve real hearings and justice should not hinge on political timelines. But they did that. And then, as you say, they issued a pretty wimpy decision that that seemed to make a resounding statement, but in fact just dodged and ducked major parts of the law, all but obliging the Supreme Court to step in here. And so now court credibility out there, political interference, the Department of Justice's reputation is mud with half of the country, which views this as political. I just do not see where the upside in this is at all for civil society. Yeah, the D.C. Circuit really, I think, abdicated by not uh, addressing the substance of Nixon v. Fitzgerald to kind of dismiss it and say, well, that just happens to be for a civil case. This is a criminal statute. Of course, no president is immune from uh, criminal prosecution, a former president from criminal prosecution, but without addressing 
addressing the real substantive point about presidential responsibilities that was embedded in Nixon v. Fitzgerald. And that has now redounded to the detriment of Jack Smith and the people who want to prosecute Donald Trump. All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, Mitch McConnell will step down as leader at the end of this Congress. We'll talk about his legacy and what comes next for Republicans. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Go with Kim Strassel and Bill McGurnan. Let's turn to another subject, Mitch McConnell, Republican leader of the Senate. Since 2007, longest serving Senate leader has announced that he will step down as leader at the end of this term. And let's listen to a clip of him announcing his decision on the Senate floor. So it's time for me to think about another season. I love the Senate. It's been my life. There may be more distinguished members of this body throughout our history, but I doubt there were any with any more admiration for the Senate. After all this time, I still got a thrill walking into the Capitol and especially on this venerable floor, knowing that we, each of us, have the honor to represent our states and do the important work of our country. But Father, time remains undefeated. A moving statement by uh, Senator McConnell. Bill, how do you see his legacy? Oh, I think it's for a Republican. It's a great legacy. You know, I think there's confusion about what an individual senator can be and what a majority leader has to be. You can't get the ideological purity in a leader. They have to hold the conference together and make deals and keep your eye on the larger prize and get things through. There are some votes that Senator McConnell took, you know, on the Inflation Reduction Act, I think it was, uh, or the CHIPS Act. No, it wasn't Inflation Reduction Act. He opposed that. It was the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act. Yeah. And I would oppose that. But in the larger scheme, I mean, he's also an example. Donald Trump's probably greatest achievement as president was three justices on the Supreme Court that are pretty good. And that is thanks to Senator McConnell. It just points out that, you know, as president, just as you can't rule by executive order, you can't get your agenda through without working with your Republican allies. And I think that holding up Garland, I mean, people should be forever in his debt for keeping Garland off the Supreme Court. But he held it through. He's willing to take the arrows. And I love this manner. You know, he'd go out there and mumble some statement. I read the legislation by the same <laughs> gentleman from this. And, you know, you wouldn't take him that seriously. And you know that he fixed the system so he would get his way. He had purpose to everything he did. So I think we owe him a lot of gratitude for showing what a majority leader can do. And I think we'll miss him. Whoever is chosen, no matter how good, won't have immediately the experience that he did. And we'll see the problems. I'll be curious to see if the Republican Party hangs together or they empower a wing that just divides themselves going into um, 
the elections in next year. The uh, episode you mentioned about Merrick Garland was nominated by Barack Obama to be um, uh, on the Supreme Court when uh, Antonin Scalia died suddenly in uh, February of 2016. McConnell announced immediately that he, as majority leader at the time, would not hold a vote on confirmation. Took enormous uh, public heat for that, but he was able to make it stick because he had the confidence and the support of his entire caucus, which is pretty broad-based ideologically. And that runs from Susan Collins in Maine to the most conservative members. And he was able to hold that seat open and to say it will be filled by the next president. And of course, when Donald Trump won, he was able to fill that seat who became Justice Neil Gorsuch. But for the election in 2016, my own view is that that open seat created an enormous uh, motivation for many conservative voters who otherwise had doubts about Donald Trump in that election to come out and vote for him because they viewed the majority at the Supreme Court was at stake at the time with Justice Scalia's death. It was 4-4. Oh, absolutely. This was, uh, I think, a huge reason. I mean, millions of people on the right came out to vote because they understood that what was at stake here and what McConnell set up was this understanding it wasn't just the presidency, but the Senate and the Supreme Court that were all on the ballot and at risk here. And I think that played an enormous role in Donald Trump's victory. You know, one thing else, and I, I don't think he always gets enough credit for it, we're talking about some of the things that McConnell has had these incredible victories for. And, and obviously, judicial nominations, not just the Supreme Court, they confirmed 234 judges during Trump's tenure, 54 current circuit nominees and three Supreme Court justices. He has done a lot of other things on, uh, take another issue where he was very strong, even though it was very unpopular, campaign finance and free speech at a time when the entire media conglomerate and even many on the right were, oh, we need more rules that make it harder to allow people to campaign. And that included, for instance, John McCain leading that fight. Mitch McConnell really stood tall. And I think that's been a, an important issue for the country and First Amendment protections. But also, He's an institutionalist, and that is something he doesn't get enough credit for, but it's so important these days. Democrats completely abandoned any care for standing up for the Senate as an institution and started taking orders from the White House long ago. Mitch McConnell believes in the institution of the Senate and that it is a separate branch of government. And that caused him friction, for instance, at times when Donald Trump was president. He just wanted Mitch McConnell to roll over, and McConnell wouldn't. But I think it's been very important at a day and age when so many of our standards and precedents are going down the tubes. He has stood a little bit as a bulwark, for instance, like the legislative filibuster and different sort of procedures and rules in the Senate that I think have been important to preserving that institution as a body of trust. Very important point, Kim, I think, particularly as you go forward. The truth is that Donald Trump will never forgive Mitch McConnell for the speech he gave after the January 6th events and after the vote of not to impeach him again, failed trial in the Senate. After the second impeachment, he gave an excoriating speech about Trump's behavior, even though he did not support impeaching or convicting Trump after that impeachment, though something like, what, six or eight of the Republicans did at the time. Interesting historical uh, counterfactual. What would have happened if Mitch McConnell had said uh, he was coming out to convict Donald Trump at that second impeachment. Well, we'll never know. Mitch McConnell is, of course, 82 years old, and that's a factor in his departure here. We'll have to take up the battle for succeeding Mitch McConnell at another show. 
We've been gabbing quite a lot today about these subjects. So thank you for listening. And thank you, Kim. And thank you, Bill. We're here every day on Potomac Watch. Thanks for listening. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.